You are listening to the In Context podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Context podcast. Today we have another special guest from across the pond. Uh, today we have Dene Pierre and rather than me introduce her, I'll let her introduce herself. Uh, good morning, Dene. Good morning. It's great to be with you guys. Yeah. I am. Yeah. 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 It's good. It's good to be with you guys. Yeah. I'm here in Phoenix, Arizona. So the West coast of the uh, United States and um, we have four kids with one on the way. And uh, we, my husband pastors a multi-ethnic church in downtown Phoenix. And we planted it about 15 years ago uh, in, in our city. And then I work with pastors and network leaders um, both in Phoenix through Surge and across North America uh, with, with with Creek Collective. Awesome, awesome. So you, you've done some things with the Gospel Coalition as well, I've noticed. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're a writer? Yes, I'm, I, I enjoy writing, yeah. yeah. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so obviously very busy, so I do appreciate your time. And what is it, 7 a.m. in, in America where you are? Yes, it's, it's 7, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is nice because half the year, our time, our time zones don't change. So if this was the other half of the year, it would actually be six o'clock. So, right. so this is good. You let me, you let, you let me sleep in this time. <laughs> oh, brilliant. So many of our listeners uh, are only uh, new to what we're trying to do through Medhurst Ministries. Uh, we're, mm-hmm. we're just a small podcast with, with a growing audience who are keen to help uh, people who are working in areas that have been neglected by the gospel, uh, mm-hmm. not just the gospel, but uh, social economic problems. And uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, when I saw the Creek Collective, I, I was really excited to see what you were doing uh, across in America. So can you just explain a little bit about what the Creek Collective is? Yeah, the Creek Collective, um, for, the last, for the last several years, this group of pastors, um, five, six different pastors have been um, gathering and praying and just beginning to dream about what it would look like to plant uh, churches in uh, particularly distressed black and brown neighborhoods. So, you know, in our context in America, a lot of our poverty um, has been gener- has been, you know, we have all kinds of different policies and laws that um, segregated communities, right? And so, um, our our poverty is locational. Usually, it's in a part of a part of the city, a particular part of the city, and a lot of times, it's also connected to race and ethnicity due to longstanding injustices here in the United States. And so um, these brothers, at that point, it was all African-American pastors. Um, we now have a, a Latino pastor on our board, a Hispanic pastor. And um, they uh, had all planted churches um, and had a real burden and passion to uh, invest financially and leadership and resources into um, these neighborhoods. And so the BDD Annabelle was one of the main founders, and he had planted in um, a neighborhood in DC and had just over his last five years of being in that particular neighborhood, it's had a growing burden to, um, to, yeah, to, to help other pastors come into lower income communities and partner with their neighbors and plant, plant the gospel there. And, and, and th- these, these leaders uh, are quite recognized within uh, the mm-hmm. evangelical world. And yeah. I'll imagine a, a lot of them have been uh, highly educated and, and, and probably weren't living in these areas uh, prior mm-hmm. to replanting in these areas. So mm-hmm. how, how did you manage to get these group of uh, gifted men, uh, yeah. gifted godly men to, to move into these areas that have been neglected mm-hmm. through the gospel for so long? Yeah, I think it's a mixture. I think for some of it, um, some of these pastors are from these neighborhoods many years ago. 
um, or have lots of family there. Um, and so there's there's that aspect of it, of just kind of returning, maybe not to the same neighborhood, but to the same, a similar context to which you or your family um, was raised in. So there's familiarity there. Um, and then I think, you know, again, in America, our, our story um, on race is pretty specific and contextual to our to our Amer American story I think there's just a big a lot of solidarity and desire to um, to find ways for the church to be present in places where we've had long-standing injustice and and the complexity right when you start when you talk about things that happen over generations then you show up in a neighborhood where there's um, a lot of social problems it's very complex you can't blame it on any any one thing you know, there's individual responsibilities, corporate responsibility, there's historical issues. And so I think, I think as, as these brothers had been praying and talking and working it out a little bit in their own church and well, like working it out in their own churches and then beginning to have a vision to have a little bit of, um, you know, different pastors that they're training up and sending into other, other neighborhoods. Um, I think it was just a desire not just to talk about it, not just to write about it, um, but to, to begin to, um, to build God's kingdom to participate with what God is already doing in these neighborhoods and to um, and to see how how do how does a Christian community uh, be present in these places and then push back against um, some of the brokenness that's there. Yeah, I, I like the, the the word solidarity. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that's an encouraging word. And uh, when I was reading uh, reading Wild Black by Esau Macaulay, he mentioned that prior to the, the civil rights movement, that there was a lot of solidarity within the black community. But as uh, with social uplift, he mentions mm. that there was, there was uh, that solidarity wasn't as strong as it was. Yeah. Uh, what do you think is it that is, is happening now for mm -hmm. the black community to be, uh, yeah, to, to have this solidarity again and to be focusing on these areas mm -hmm. that have been neglected for so long, because, we would like to learn from that because that's one mm -hmm. thing that we are missing in, in the church yeah. in England is solidarity. And is there any yeah. lessons we could learn to help reach these communities in the UK that have been neglected for so long too? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things towards the end of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life, he was talking a lot about, you know, not you know racism, but also um, poverty and how, um, you know, one of the threats to, helping God's people push into push against injustice and represent his kingdom to be a what he would call a beloved community um, was our comforts and privileges our, our wealth right that we that that can be very distracting and so class you know different classes has always been a challenge um, to helping people be present long term um, among the poor um, and so I, I do think that there's been you know a, a lot I, I think there's always, you know, at least within Christian spaces, um, a sense of like family and solidarity um, for um, for people of color in, in in the Christian church. Some of that might just be having been a minority in a major in a in a context where you're you're the minority, you're, you're culturally different. Um, there's, we we have a book that uh, called Divided by Faith that came out. 20 years ago and the sequel's coming the sequel's coming out this year and it's just a sociological study of how Americans of different races view church and we're very it's very different right same faith same beliefs but how we understand each other and the church and worship is very very different <clears throat> so um yeah so I think there's been this this long-standing familiarity but I think this last seven or eight years with 
um, both the videos that had been posted, you know, it, it, it wasn't news to many people of color that that we've had police brutality and and um and just these long-standing issues around criminal justice and and different things that impact particular neighborhoods, um, public schools being disinvested in some neighborhoods and you know well-funded in others. You know, so this, this hasn't been unknown, but I think social media has allowed. Um, maybe what was a living room conversation to become a public conversation. So it spread quite rapidly. Um, and then I think there's, and then I think some of the, the wider church's response um, was pretty harsh, right? They weren't necessarily ready to step into that. So I think that allowed for um, some, some disruption and some recommitments to these neighborhoods. I think for us, you know, no matter what, you know, whether you're, um, you know, we're, you know, no matter where you are, one of the things that when we're working with leaders, um, that seems to be the biggest distraction is just the temptations of the middle class. And so when you're, when you're asking the church to be in solidarity um, with places of suffering and poverty and injustice, it's more than just, a, you know, than just a missions trip or a service project or volunteering a couple hours on the weekend, you're asking them to live in community. And that sometimes means reevaluating how you spend your life, your time, the schools your kids go to. Um, and I don't mean it in some legalistic way. I think that can get legalistic pretty fast um, or to shame people. But, you know, our, our addiction to comfort and our kind of individualistic, um, cons especially for Americans, consumeristic um, tendencies tend to be just these blinders to our faith that if we don't help people become aware of how much they're luring us um, away from the gospel practice, then um, it becomes so easy for for um, the poor to be forgotten and or for it to be a side project um, as opposed to as opposed to a community that we're building and living in relationship with. Yeah, awesome. And and again, it's uh, encouraging to hear that people. Uh, were convicted about talking about it and said enough let's stop talking about it let's do something about it mm -hmm. and um, how does the creek collective help people who were already in that position ministering who who, who having uh, comfort addiction is one thing but some people might have might have been without comfort for a long time and that is yes. a burden when you're serving mm -hmm. alone and how Absolutely. is the creek collective encouraging pastors to remain in these in these uh, towns and cities yes well yeah so that's the, that's the other side of it right mm -hmm. there's um you know james talks about you know exalting the poor and the, the the wealthy being humbled right or there's just this imagery of yeah the message sometimes of good news to those with lots of resources mm -hmm. is to abandon your resources in light of the kingdom right mm -hmm. to those who've been without for a long time and who've suffered um i think this is where you know, there's, there's work that we have that we do as local churches. Um, but the reason we're doing, we're not just planting churches, but we're building something that we're calling a collective is that we think we, you know, we need each other. We need more resourced churches to be investing and carrying the financial burdens of um, some of these church plants in less resourced, financially resourced um, congregation, congregations or churches. And I think sometimes in church planning, there's a lot of language around becoming self-sufficient and independent um, but when you look at the, when you look at Paul's letters to the church, he's talking to Macedonia and the, the Jerusalem church and he's taking offerings and, you know, second Corinthians, you know, the way he's, the way he's pleading for that money, it's not, he's, he's not like, 
you know, he's, he's not joking, right? He's like, he's like pushing every button to say, Hey, be faithful to, 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 to your offering to this other church. Um, you know, and I think, I, I think the, the epistles seem so much more um, aware of how to distribute finances based on who's in need, who's in famine, who's, who's, be, who's under persecution. And we, we've taken such an individual, you know, plant that church, be self-sufficient. If this church has, to, if this pastor has to work three jobs and, and that pastor is making six, you know, a six figure income, that's, that, that's no problem. And I think it is a problem. It is a challenge. And so we've allowed a lot of our economic values, our American or Western cultural values to dictate how we approach these things. So, so we do, um, I mean, again, we're very new. We're in our first year of starting up. So, you know, we're just about to announce our first three church plants. And um, so I don't have a ton of stories, but each of those pastors bring, you know, decades of experience. And we've all been ministering in these contexts for a very long time. And I think we realize the financial component is that these neighborhoods who may not have um, financial resources at the same level as a middle-class or wealthy neighborhood, but there's substantial gifts, talents, um, things that God has deposited in these communities, in these neighborhoods, and we need to find ways to have better partnership. And so, um, yeah, so our financial model of how we support, how we plant uh, churches, and then how we stay interconnected so that we can meet needs together um, is really important to us. Yeah, it's, so New Life Church, where I'm, I'm, I was the planter and now the pastor of, uh, is uh, coming up to its 10th year, and we're still nowhere near self-sufficient. Uh, and I'm only employed because of the generosity of an organization from Scotland, 20 Schemes. Uh, are you aware of 20 Schemes? Yes, I am, yeah. <laughs> love, love those brothers. <laughs> yeah, they're great. So, so Mez is a good friend of mine, and he's been a, a great support and advocate for me, and uh, without him, uh, yeah, we wouldn't be here. Uh, and it's in the UK. What we have is poor churches supporting other poor churches, and the 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 task we have, the difficult we difficulty we have, is getting the larger, uh, more materialistically gifted churches to to, to support us uh, financially, or even with resources and, and people, and and trying to get that solidarity is 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 really difficult. Uh, Mez keeps saying that uh, we're trying to plant in Scotland. They're trying to plant twenty churches in poor neighbourhoods, not twenty poor churches. So, so we don't yeah. just want to recreate right. poor churches. We want to have churches that are sustainable, but through partnerships. So, how have you managed to develop partnerships? Uh, yeah. Have you encountered any difficulties? Yeah, yeah. So we've seen the similar, similar. You know, we'll have a church, um, for example. You know you know, the funding agencies who fund church plants, they might fund a church that's not going to be in a poor neighborhood with substantial money because, it, you know, they're renting in a, a part of town where rent is higher, cost of living is higher, you know, there's a lot of logic for it. And then they'll give a small grant to a poor church and, a, and um, partly that pastor already is gifted in what we call hustling, right? Like he just kind of knows how to how to pull, you know, how to, how to work it. So he's going to, you know, you give him whatever you give him, he's going to use for mission. Right. Um, and, and then the logic is, oh, see, look at how much he did on that little bit. He doesn't need more. And I think there's just this, this way we go about, oh, we can, you know, we can put $5,000 to these, 
you know, inner city, low income churches, but we're going to give 500,000 to this, you know, this church in this wealthy neighborhood. And not that it needs to be an equal amount. I understand that the difference cost of living, but the rationale for those with resources, a lot of times it just, the logic doesn't actually fit the neighborhood, the neighborhoods that we're planting in. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so there, there's a mixture of, you know, we, when we've, as we've been doing research on like how much church planting has happened in these neighborhoods intentionally. I mean, there's, there's always been a substantial amount of like just someone with a vision, you know, getting a storefront and starting worship service. Right. Um, but the, the amount of energy and resources and dollars in American church planting nonprofits, networks, agencies by and large don't go to these neighborhoods. And so um, to form partnerships, a couple of different ways. One is we're just really being intentional on building relationships with um, business leaders and community leaders of, you know, you know, who, who also are passionate about these neighborhoods. So maybe it's not the traditional church planting foundations or um, organizations that give substantial amounts, um, unless they're, unless they're willing to really rethink their metrics and, and why they, why, you know, if they're willing to let us be an experiment, those are the best uh, uh, planters, I mean, partners. But for the most part, like the model for church planting, the financial model is pretty set. Um, and it doesn't, it wasn't built for these neighborhoods. And so we're looking for people who either let us be creative with church planting dollars and, and churches, um, you know, well, financially resourced churches who will, be, who will allow us to be creative in, in this, in this space, or um, we're just looking for kind of marketplace Christian leaders who have a heart for this and don't feel the need to kind of control how it, how it gets, how it gets spent. But, but for us, you know, everything from like how we're giving, you know, how we're raising money to like the metrics of what we want to see happen, you know, to how fast, you know, what do we, you know, what for your church, for example, um, you know, how do we, what do we consider mature and healthy? Um, is it just independence financially or, you know, how is it involved in making disciples, sending new pastors and planters and um, seeing God's people released for mission in that neighborhood? Um, those are the kinds of things that we're trying to say, okay, there has to be more metrics than what we're using um, to say this is a, this is a fruitful, a, fu a fruitful and faithful church plant. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's it, isn't it? If, if, a, if a church is preaching the gospel in, in a place that the gospel isn't being preached and that's, that's, <laughs> that's fearful and that's fruitful. And again, yeah, how we measure success is so different in hard to reach context than it is in probably more affluent areas. And uh, yeah. So the question for me is, how do you prove it's successful? I think if we can get people to our neighborhood and show them what we're doing on the ground, that excites them. But on paper, when they're just looking at one sheet of paper with facts and figures, you can't excite people because uh, it's the relationships that excite people, I think, in our neighborhoods rather than uh, the, the, the output. Yeah, so that, yeah, it's a challenge that we've we, we've found. And again, I think uh, with, with solidarity, what we find is that the church in England is very uh, white, academic, middle class. So all the models tend to be white, academic and middle class. Uh, every uh, from, from outreach to evangelism to discipleship to funding, it all seems to be one type of style. And to get people excited about what we're doing is often is often difficult. And to get people uh, to have that same passion uh, when the church is is uh, 
I think 50% of the UK is working class or classed as poor, yet we yeah. make up about 10% of the church congregation. So mm-hmm. again, how, uh, how do you create a church that will attract uh, the people who are missing if the mm-hmm. majority of people <laughs> yeah in the well, we have, that community yeah yeah we have these deep again we have so many unexamined beliefs and assumptions that don't come from the gospel they don't come from scripture they come from western culture right so how we view power and class and prestige um you know a lot of a lot, i also work with a lot of city um leaders who are trying to form collaboratives across the city and the instinct is to gra- is to gather the most influential, the most the most well known, um, and get them to do something for the kingdom together. But when I look at scripture, just again, even as how Jesus unfolded his ministry, like the, the poor, the marginalized are at the table, um, and and their voices are amplified. And so I think if we really want to build that, it's not just you know those with wealth or with resource financial resources um going to minister to the margins it's actually let's bring the margins to the center of what we're doing let's let them set some of the vision and the direction and um that's how we begin to see our cultural idols you know the things that we worship other than you know that we think it's neutral but these are actually distractions from the gospel whether that's you know our our jobs our industries you know our our socioeconomic status that unless we're in, like you said, in relationship and, um, and, you know, for those churches, you know, when I'm talking with those churches, there's just a lot of encouragement to, to follow the leadership. Um, so not just serve and give, but follow the leadership of those who are ministering in the margins. And it, there's tension, right? There's all kinds of tension and, you know, pride and ego on both sides, right? Like it's not, it's not like it's just this kumbaya moment, but that tension, I think, is what what the, what the Holy Spirit knits together for us to be a healthy body of Christ. Yeah. And sometimes you mentioned uh, wanting the place at the table. That's something that I've fought for for a long time. Uh, in the end, I thought I'll just have my own table and <laughs> see who wants to join me. Is that something that you've got to do statewide? Is that probably yeah. how the Creek Collective came about? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a mixture of both. There's a lot, you know, a lot of these brothers and myself have spent a lot of time um, at tables that um, yeah, are built for a particular context. And I think there's friendship, there's relationship, there's in those spaces, you tend to be a prophetic voice. Um, but, but to get mission and work done, we can't always just be a prophetic voice. We've got to be able to lead and, 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 and shepherd and direct and give vision. Um, and so different tables, um, at least mission, missionally, do have to be built. And then I think the reconciliation work, until there's like, you know, deep repentance and repair, the reconciliation process is, hey, let's stay in relationship. Let's not cut each other off. Let's not judge one another. Um, you know, let's let's think about how to grace, 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 gracious, graciously walk together. Um, but yeah, the, the, I think that's part of what we're seeing happen both through Crete and many other things, it's like there's there's a pace we want to run, and um, and there's such need, there's such need, there's so much significant need for um, for planting in these neighborhoods and for and for encouraging the health of these churches that have already been there for a long time. Like like there's these are these are really great places to be serving. Is there, they're hard they're hard 
they're often hard neighborhoods to go to um and because of their because they're overlooked and like you said there's financial problems but it's like I mean it's a king it's, it's such a blessing to be in these spaces it's it's rich it's life-giving like, would you want to be anywhere else you know so it's that's the, that's the nature of the kingdom so it's so I think there's there's this need to yeah let's it's time to be very intentional and focused um we can't keep you know giving we we will always be in relationship with all different kinds of contexts but but these neighborhoods deserve attention and focus and with these neighborhoods as well with uh, because many christians have abandoned these neighborhoods to encourage christians uh, back into these neighborhoods is there some secondary issues that uh, these churches are willing to to let go like denominationally whether it be baptist or presbyterian and and working together to reach these communities yeah that's a great question yeah i would say you know what's interesting about at least again the American context is um, there's a lot more recept- receptivity to the gospel mm. um, and Christian memory, like grandma, grandma took, dragged us to church or, or even just a sense of like, you know, God and Jesus um, in a lot of these neighborhoods and there are in the middle-class and wealthy neighborhoods. Um, so there's what we have, we have a hunger here. There's a openness, um, I think, I think that there, yeah, but yes, but, 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 um, you know, there's, yeah, I I think that the need to partner in for mission, especially, you know, financially and in encouraging and coaching is things that what's more, what's more, um, I think central to the church plant is a shared context, um, where when you, when you're, when you're gathering, across the continent or across the globe it might be more theology that you're sharing but when you're talking mission it's a shared context so there's very unique things to the context that surface unique questions that the gospel can answer and the question you know the gospel is the same in wealthy and poor neighborhoods but the questions are different and we need to be really great apologists who are able to um, respond and, and missionaries who can respond to the questions of that particular culture and context. Um, and so, yeah, so there's, um, you know, so there's both, I think there's, you know, the Crete has, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're, they have a particular doctrinal position. They are collaborating across, um, or that, you know, they have Presbyterian Baptist, some of those lines, but then there's other second, secondary issues that they've decided, Hey, these are the kinds of churches we're going to plant. They're going to look, you know, they're going to kind of, um, fit within this tradition. Um, but the posture is different, right? The posture is, but if we're planting in a neighborhood, we want to be a blessing and in, in, in relationship with the different church, you know, churches already in that community. Um, and those are a very big spectrum theologically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, 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 that presence and that friendship is really important to our witness and our presence in that neighborhood. Um, you know, we might, you know, our trainings and our coaching, we want that to be more open, you know, across the spectrum. So I think it's both. Um, and I think, I think where we're seeing the best collaboration happen in the U S there's a sense of like, Hey, we can have our, you know, our local churches have our doctrinal positions that, that matter and that we care about. And we need, we need to land the plane on some of these issues to figure out how we're going to do a worship service. Um, but so we're going to be clear in our own convictions but we're going to be charitable across, across denomination or across church, church, um, because of both for the sake of mission, right. Both for the sake of reaching 
uh, these new neighborhoods. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've missed out on some funding because mm-hmm. by conviction, I'm a, I'm a Reformed Baptist. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet in, in, in reality, on the ground where we are, uh, we have our church membership open to uh, pedo-baptists as well mm-hmm. uh, just because there was no other uh, churches in the area so we yeah. didn't want to exclude the christians in the area who right. the bible preaching church uh, so because that's in our constitution some funders have rejected our applications yeah. yet for me the gospel being preached is far greater than holding on to my personal convictions absolutely it, it does cause me some problems, and in, in the future I might have some problems, but I'd rather a church split and we have two gospel preaching churches, one Presbyterian mm-hmm. and one Baptist, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> than have no churches. So I think even the, risks, so even the risks of disagreement in the future are beneficial because yeah. by not holding tightly onto secondary issues, right. you could then morph into several churches rather than just having the one. It's yeah, we were 15 years in my husband's a reformed Baptist and he planted with a Presbyterian and, and we have both, you know, and it's not ideal to either one of them, but it has been such a sweet, such a sweet, I think it's, it's cultivated a sweet posture of how we should hold second, second order issues. Um, Yeah. You know, and it's interesting. I have a a pastor here in Phoenix who we, we, we talk about how the church is willing to split on doctrine all the time. Um, and, um, and, you know, and you pick these things that aren't even heresy. It's like faithful readings of scripture, you know, can land, we, we, we appreciate both, put both positions, both sides, um, but we're willing to split and cut ties and not worship together. And yet when it gets into relational heresies, he'll, he'll use that word of like, what's the relational heresy of how, you know, when, when we begin to think about how much Jesus said about our, our, our income and our spending and our generosity and our, our commitment to the kingdom and the ways of, like, you listen to the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, there is a lot of clear um, vi- and vivid imagery that Jesus uses and the, and the epistles use to call us to live a certain type of community. And we'll commit, I mean, what you're describing to me is like relational heresy. Like, we're not going to, give this church and need money. We love everything about you, but because you accept another brother and sister in Christ into your membership, we can't, we can't fund you. It's, it's like, we have so much more tolerance for relational heresies than we do doctrinal heresies. And both are important. Like we don't want to, you know, throw a doctrine out the window, but I have to wonder how you sit through the gospels and the epistles and walk away with anything other than like, Jesus is radically, radically committed to the unity of his bride and oneness. And it's not to say we're not going to have differences and tension over those differences, but like intellectual agreement, theological agreement does not make us one. The spirit of God does. And most of the one another's and most of the epistles, when it comes to that oneness of the spirit and not quenching the spirit are about our posture towards each other, how we treat each other, um, how we're living as family. Um, so yeah, it, it's very tragic. It's very common. And I think, I think it, I, I just, I imagine it grieves, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And it's one of those things we have to repent of as the, as the Western church, just the ways we approach these, these differences. Yeah. And that leads us into uh, some of the other uh, ministries that you're involved with, with, with your home church and, and, and your husband, uh, you mentioned relational heresies. So uh, w- one of the greatest tragedies I think is how, when people look 
at suitability for eldership, they will look at their ability to teach, what seminary they, they came from, or uh, how they handle themselves in public. Yet very rarely do they look at how they handle themselves in the home regarding hospitality. Uh, mm -hmm. our, our religion is supposed to be uh, benchmarked by how we love the widow and the orphan. And again, so many churches fail tragically in that. Yeah, I was really encouraged when I was doing some research and I, and I looked at your church in Phoenix to see uh, the work that you have set up with fostering, uh, working alongside safe families uh, for children. And, and, and what was the ministry that you've set up uh, yourself mm -hmm. within your church? Yeah, so our church is right. We bump, we bump up against, um, you know, what we would call a housing project here. I don't know what you guys call but basically government housing Um and, and just a very long-term, you know, maybe five generations of poverty in this neighborhood, um, but also very rich, culturally rich neighborhood, right? A lot of this neighborhood for up until maybe the 1960s, um, you know, it was where Native, Amer uh, Native people and, um, Lat you know, Latino immigrants had to live. So there's like a lot of really rich history and community in this neighborhood, but a lot of poverty. And we began to meet kids in the neighborhood that we had relationships that began to come into foster care. And um, what we realized was there's a lot that the, that the church is doing, at least here, um, to help initiate foster care and take care of kids. Um, but there's very little happening for the birth parents, the birth moms. Um, in fact, there's a lot of, you know, there's, a, there's, there's very little compassion or even interest in um, knowing who these parents are and their stories and why why their kids are entering the foster care system. And so that was our initial, um, just beginning to wrap around uh, birth moms and initially, but now it's both uh, moms and dads um, whose kids were taken into the foster care system and to walk through, you know, whether it's parenting classes that were, um, you know, and helping uh, people just a lot, you know, sometimes it was like they just didn't have mattresses. It wasn't an, an issue of abuse. It was Hey, the school called. They missed a bunch of school. They don't have, they don't have mattresses. How do we help with that? Um, but most of it was is relational, right? The needing of, of relational network. And what I think a lot of our, uh, as we've expand, as we expanded and other churches involved, what I keep hearing from people is they never realized how much their own social network of grandparents, aunts, uncles, you know, friends you trust to drop your kids off, like how much that. Um, protects them from ending up in these crises. And so a lot of the, um, the birth families that we were working with, um, they didn't have that social network. And so, so yeah, so hospitality and get, and again, like it's, it's, if you, there's so much fear, right? When we talk about crossing class, class barriers um, and, and like you said, your poor churches give to your poor churches. Our poor families are the most generous hospitable families to other to wealthy and poor in our church um and and there is um discipleship and a threshold that has to be crossed over you know in order for that hospitality to take root across these different and I think that's why the local church is the best place to do it right because um you're worshiping together you're doing communion together you're, you're in small groups together um if if we can't cross those barriers as the church how are we going to do it um, with our neighbours. Yeah. yeah, no, it's really exciting. We set up a similar ministry called 68.5 based on Psalm 68.5 mm. about God being a father to the fatherless and mm. uh, found the same thing, supporting uh, these parents. Many of them were isolated 
uh, a lot had come from the care system themselves and, and really what they needed was uh, everything that we took for granted uh, if, if they were ill they had nobody to take them to school or mm-hmm. to go to the shops or if somebody was struggling uh, emotionally or mentally it was just that mm-hmm. lack of community that was mm-hmm. probably most parents that were referred to was mm-hmm. lack of community and isolation was probably the biggest mm-hmm. problem yeah um, and as a church, if we can't offer, offer community, then <laughs> there's something wrong, isn't it? And I think so uh-huh. many people in our community see us as their local church, even though they've never mm. been to a Sunday service. Yeah. yeah. take ownership of that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I love that. I do love, you know, our church gets called by all, you know, we also, we all, you know, we have that neighborhood, but we also are like in the middle of this very posh arts district. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just been there for, for so long. And so a lot of the neighbors will call us the, the community's church. Yeah, yeah. And every time I hear them say that, I love it. I'm like, I love that. That's what they love. Like, oh yeah, he's the pastor of the community's church. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, I love, I love that. That's, but, but that takes time. You don't, you can't do that in a couple of years. As you know, you guys are 10, 10 years in. Yeah. 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 It may take, it takes, it takes a lot of time and consistent small acts of love and obedience and hospitality and 10 15 years later you have those relationships and you're the community's church and the good thing it's, it's humbling in one sense because not everyone who uh knows the church knows i'm the pastor so that's yeah, exciting. i love that yes it, it's the people who live locally who worship with us mm-hmm. the members who were who were doing most love of the work that. you see yes praise god yeah. amen Often yeah. I'll turn up and they'll wonder who I am, and <laughs> <laughs> that's a great feeling, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can sneak out without getting too busy. <laughs> right, <laughs> that's great. Well, again, I know I got you on to talk about the Creek Collective, but I'm just so excited by a lot of the work that you're involved with, and and the Surge Networks, and another one because in the north of England many of the pastors suffer from isolation as well mm-hmm. uh, the small churches in in areas uh, 15 20 miles away from a, from another church mm-hmm. uh, and again i think when you're slogging trudging through gospel ministry you're not seeing much fruit you can become disheartened and, mm-hmm. and feel alone and uh, one of the things we try and do with medhurst ministries is uh, just provide that support and and, and training and um for both the wives and female gospel workers as well as the pastors so when i saw that you were involved with the surge network mm-hmm. and that you weren't uh, a charity or a church's ministry you were a collection of different churches working together that excited me and maybe we could learn from that how did you get all these different churches together on board uh, like you say many people come with egos to the table mm-hmm. <laughs> how can yeah. you head in the same direction while leaving the egos on the table yeah yeah, I think it's two things. I think um, initially when the first group of pastors, uh, four or five guys began gathering, it, they were part of a similar denomination, a similar network um, mm-hmm. that was very tight, right? It was like they were complementarian, reformed. I guess there was some Baptist and Presbyterian, but it was like a very particular kind of church plant. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was some some pastors who had been around for a long time that weren't connected to that that network, but just wanted to mentor these younger pastors. Um, and I think that there is a couple, there's two key pastors initially, um, who just had such a humble posture and just loved, loved everyone. So, you know, the pastor, um, who eventually became the pastor of the largest church in that network, several thousand people regularly referred to a pastor who was ministering to 80 people as someone he was learning from. 
And so I think just this posture of having some people who, um, from the beginning, who have that humility and that kingdom mindedness and that vision for, look at this city needs large churches, small churches, house churches, you know, there's all these different, we, we need, we need all these different uh, realities. Um, and then he was good about, you know, he's who established the first relationship with me and say, and we began to have other denominations, other networks um, come together. And so, you know, I was working with a lot of, um, I was doing a lot of church with, through the foster care stuff. I was working with a lot of churches in predominantly African-American, Latino neighborhoods, um, and so I came over to lead, when they were, when they began growing to lead the surge network. Um, and, and I think there was, I think the second piece, which I think really is helpful if you're in, a, in an area where you're isolated is there was this like conversion the pastors had where they were like, oh, we are ministers. Our full-time job is to lead this congregation, but it's a congregation full of ministers, full of people who are to be sent out. And what does it look like for us to stop having such a sharp distinction between clergy and laity and to reorient our vocations to see God's people equipped and released for mission? And, um, you know, and that can be, that is both super messy, right? And, um, and for lots of reasons, some of it is which were, some of these churches were in the kinds, they were in, they were in a structure and institution that you know, was decades old, older than them, their, than their ministry. And it's not easy just to have some of these, you can have conversions as a pastor, but helping your church have a shared conversion, um, it takes time. Right. So there was, so I do think both of those really helped. Um, and then, you know, once we began to have, um, for us different, you know, Afri when we were able to have African-American and, and, and Spanish speaking Hispanic pastors, and, and we began having international pastors from all over the globe who, who have, you know, congregations in their original language that they're preaching in. When we began to have that level of diversity, a lot of the theological distinctions, there's still a, you know, there's still a deep theological core. We have a seminary. Uh, we do a nine-month training program for lay leaders. Um, that's, that's deep, you know, all kinds of Bible. Um, so we have deep theology, but we have complementarian egalitarians working. We have a, a gospel coalition church helping uh, plant a female Anglican priest. Um, and, and we have all kinds of stories like that, 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 um, it's almost fun. You know, the, the baptism thing is like, yeah, there's that our Baptist churches are Baptist and our Presbyterian churches are Presbyterian, but like it's, it's, it hasn't been an issue in so long for us because there's even, you know, these other things that we're collaborating on. And, um, there's, there's always moments, you know, within the course of a year, there's moments of significant tension. Usually it's because of culture, whatever's happening nationally, you know, the diversity within our, our network surfaces pretty quick. Um, but the, re the relationship time together, we've, we've done, you know, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of meals together. Um, I mean, I, I think we calculated it once and it was like, I mean, it had to be like in the, in the three to 400 meals that our pastors had shared together collectively. Um, and, you know, and I think when you're, when you're, when you're building space for that kind of depth of relationship, not just pastor supporting pastor, like that's important. Like the accountability and the soul care, but like relationship for the sake of mission, yeah. a missional relationship, I think is why it's been so synergistic. And so when that tension surfaces, you know, we, we, we have an older woman, she's 80 and she's an African-American pastor. She's been in our, our city forever and, and um, just has this beautiful uh, ministry. 
um, if you ever come to Phoenix, she'd be one of the places, her church would be one of the places I'd take you to. Mm -hmm. Um, but she has a, she leads a community outreach uh, within her, within her church. Um, and she always says, Danae, the only body without tension is a corpse. <laughs> and uh, I was like, you're right. She's like, the body of Christ will always have tension. The question is, is it like, are we, you know, are we injuring the body um, or are we working through that tension and, and being healthy? So, yeah. Good response. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, awesome. Yeah. Oh, it's been fantastic chatting with you. Then there, I've, I've learned so much. Uh, it's been very encouraging. I've asked you a few questions, but is there anything that you would like to share that you think that we could uh, learn from over in the UK from what's happening in the US? Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, the things that we keep coming back to is, you know, find ways to really help the church excel in seeing their cult their cultural idols hmm. um, and, and, and noticing the cultural lenses or glasses that we've adopted and we've accept and we've accepted as as good that are actually neutral. They're not evil. They're not gospel. They're gifts from God that get distorted, right? That 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 when we love them too much, they get distorted. And when when um, and so how do we? I think I think that's that for us. That's been the big big key is like for us to do the relational reconciliation and keep the focus. I'm um, coming back to like what's blinding us. Yeah. And often you need relationship with people different than you to be able to see what's blinding you. Um, so that would be my big encouragement, but man, I'm so encouraged by the work you guys are doing. And I, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be stalking, you now, uh, <laughs> internet, internet following you all and, um, add you guys to my prayer list. It's just, it's, yeah, it's really fun to see, uh, to meet brothers across the pond who have shared, shared passions and, and are doing this work. So thank you guys for the work that you're doing. Oh, awesome. Thanks very much. Dinner. And uh, thanks for joining me on the In Context podcast. Yeah.